This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, episode 1.23, Battle in the Age of Mobile Suits. And we're your hosts. I'm Tom, and I've been exposed to this podcast's greatest secrets, and so must be imprisoned for at least a year. And I'm Nina, have become a Gundam fan, but I'm having trouble keeping track of the G-whatevers. <laughs> there are so many G-whatevers. <laughs> we have a lot of people to thank this week. First, thanks to Alan N., who is both a new patron and wrote us a review. Other new patrons are Inverse Flip and Mark B. An extra special thank you to these people because they helped me with my goal of getting to 40 or more patrons by the end of the month. We now have 41. Woo! It's very exciting for us. <laughs> thank you all for being involved in this project. For reviews, we need to thank Vega What's-His-Name, Tickety Talks, and Rhett L. And thank you also to Charlie W., who wrote us a review on Facebook. I'd also like to thank people who got in touch with us on our various social medias this past week, including on Instagram, at the one year weeb, and at blue giant gunpla, as well as on Twitter, at mresuelo47, at gbloftus, and at ensignb. Because people use various different usernames, it's entirely possible that we may have thanked at least one person more than once just now. And in fact, I suspect that we did. So we really appreciate all of our listeners and everything that you've been doing for us, sharing us, talking about us with your friends, writing reviews, just interacting with us, talking about Gundam. It means a ton to us. And so we are going to thank you as many times as we can. We don't mind if you're a little sneaky. Today was the deadline for entering our giveaway contest. Uh, we are still waiting for a couple of prizes to come in the mail. Uh, but as soon as they do, we will finish the drawing, announce the winners, and ship those out to y'all. So look forward to it. And now on to the episode proper. Last week, the White Base finally joined the Battle of Odessa after being attacked by Xeon's Black Tri-Stars, ace pilots operating new heavy attack mobile suits called DOMs, and informed of the White Base's hidden position thanks to the traitorous General Elrin. Amuro, Hayato, Kai, and now Sela, as the pilot of the new G-Fighter, are hard-pressed by the attack, and only the sudden appearance of Lieutenant Matilda's Medea transport ramming one of the Doms saves Amuro and the Gundam. The Doms retreat, but the skirmish has left Matilda and much of what remained of her Supply Corps squadron dead. Soon after, Amuro and Sela uncovered the Xeon double agent Judok and the turncoat Elrin, just in time to prevent them from sabotaging the Federation's final push. More concerned with victory than honor, a fleeing McVeigh launches a forbidden hydrogen bomb, but Amuro and Hayato are able to disable it and kill the two surviving Tri-Stars. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Episode 26, Shars Return. In the research portion, we talk about spy balloons, top secret information, underwater mines, possible aesthetic influences for new mobile suits, and the Battle of Sekigahara. But first, the recap.
In a cottage near the sea, a young woman is washing dishes when suddenly the house starts to rattle. Rushing outside, she sees the white base flying low overhead towards the docks nearby. As she rushes for a camera and begins typing a coded message, it becomes clear that she is a Xeon spy. She attaches a small canister to the bottom of a balloon and releases it to float out over the sea. The radio signal coded in her message is picked up by a Xeon submarine and relayed to the Mad Angler Squadron. They are just off the coast, and Char is with them! The image is blurry, but Char suspects that the white base has arrived. The commander of the submarine suggests that Xeon ships stationed nearby send their new GOG mobile suits to attack the docks and the Federation ships there. Char insists on taking the Sealiance, a sort of speedboat, to observe the battle himself. On the white base, Kai looks forward to some R&R while they wait for repairs to complete, but Amaru reminds him that they are officially part of the army now, and things will not be as relaxed as they were. Upon arrival, they are briefed by General Revel. Xeon has been working on many new mobile suits, and what information the Federation has flashes on a screen behind him. As soon as the white base and its mobile suits have been repaired, they will be sent to Jaburo in South America, where Federation HQ is currently located. Frabo works up the courage to ask, what of those who don't want to join the army? The general tells her that due to their exposure to top-secret information, anyone who wanted to leave would be imprisoned for at least one year. Amuro later asks Fra if she means to leave the army, but she explains that she's worried about the orphans. It seems dangerous to keep them on the ship, but who would look after them if they were left behind? The gogs move swiftly through the water, but are caught in a field of underwater mines. A special freeze gel coats the outside of the suit, which prevents any more mines from detonating when they make contact. However, sensors in the area alert the base that it is under attack. Bombardment begins as both the mobile suits and the nearby submarines fire missiles on the base and the surrounding town. Initially, only the Gundam is ready to sortie, with a new, more powerful G-hammer. But even this new weaponry cannot defeat the armor and strength of the GOG. Amuro is joined by the gun tank, and by Kai in a smaller vehicle with a missile battery. The Gundam converts to the G-armor, and later to the G-bull, an extra-large tank configuration. From the command post nearby, Revel observes the battle, thinking to himself that every action now seems to require mobile suits. One GOG is destroyed in the land fighting, and the other leaps into the sea. Amuro converts the G-Bull back to the Gundam and follows. Underwater, the GOG can easily outmaneuver the Gundam, and it is only after disabling the GOG's camera that Amuro is able to end the battle. The underwater explosion causes a massive spout of water, and the White Base cannot tell who has won. Despite efforts to radio Amuro, they hear no response. A wake appears. Something underwater is speeding towards them. Finally, Amuro re-establishes radio connection, and the white base bridge crew can heave a collective sigh of relief. The Xeon submarine commander laments the loss of the mobile suits, but Shar seems unconcerned and insists that he will take out the Gundam himself. Good morning from a very cold but still scenic New York City. Frigid winter squall. Negative temperatures. New York City. Yep. We've been traveling this past week, and thanks to the vagaries of the way we put this show together, we've now watched this particular episode three times. <laughs> so, Which is only, it's only one time more than we usually would. That is true, but it feels like a lot more than that. <laughs> Uh, and we're covering just one episode this week. It's episode 26, Fukatsu no Sha, or in English, episode 25, Shar Returns. And Shar Returns is a pretty good translation for Fukatsu no Shar. 
but it's lacking a little bit of nuance, which is that fukatsu actually refers to like a return after a defeat, mm. like a revival, mm. a comeback, a restoration. It's used, for instance, in sport for the repishage bracket or for the revival of, say, a musical. That's really cool. And for resurrection. <laughs> so this is the resurrection of Shar. It's nice of them to name the episode after the only thing he does in it. Well, it feels I think, like a bait and switch, doesn't it? It feels a bit like a bait and switch, but we get good character development on him. Uh, point one, he is very nonchalant about the loss of soldiers that he doesn't feel are his. At the end of the episode, you know, he is one of the people involved in the order to send the gogs to the docks. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, when the commander of the Mad Angler is expressing regret at the loss of these two mobile suits, Char is like, oh, well, of course they, of course they died. <laughs> That's always what was going to happen to them. Uh. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to clarify there. The Mad Angler is the submarine that Shar is on at the beginning, mm -hmm. which is commanded by Mulligan. Okay. The ones that Shar travels to and arrives at at the end of the episode are not. Oh. Yeah. I That's think the, confusing. I think the Mad Angler is just the like sea monster shaped one that Char commands. Is it the one that I called the sea flap flap? Yes. It's <laughs> the one that looks a bit like a ray. Very majestic. <laughs> and the other thing about Char that I wanted to talk to you about specifically, twice in this episode, Char mentions his pride. And if he's going to take the time to mention it twice, it's obviously <laughs> very important that we know about it. Yes. Yes, uh, but both of the times when Char mentions his pride, it's two other Xeon officers by way of explanation. That's true. And that strikes me as it could be true, that could <laughs> be said in earnest, or it could be that Char knows that that is an acceptable justification for whatever his behavior is. Mm -hmm. And if this were Char, you know, between episodes one and nine, we might just take him at his word. But now we know that Char is engaged in some sort of very long-term deception. Char's interested in the long con. <laughs> yeah. And not necessarily, he's not just deceiving the Federation. He's also deceiving the other Xeon officers, including those with whom he works. Mm -hmm. And probably Kaecilia, but who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she thinks she'll be the one zombie to get out of it alive. Maybe she thinks she can change him. <laughs> or use him. That one seems more likely from her. <laughs> and with Shar in this episode, we also get some behavioral quirks that suggest uh, something weird about him, an oddness, a strangeness. There's something in his smile that feels unnatural and wrong. And there's this scene at the end where he's like looking at the blackboard and then he whips his head around to look at uh, Flanagan Boone, who he's talking to, but also at the camera. And he has this like head cocked, half smiling expression and the colors go very stark the background i think is red and he's blue or it's the other way around i think he goes pink and the background is blue okay but, but still very sharp contrasting colors suggesting something weird and unreal going on i uh my impulse was to say that he was giving us the crazy eyes but of course he's wearing his mask the whole time <laughs> <laughs> crazy mouth yeah <laughs> uh and then i I can't be entirely certain about this, but I'm pretty sure when they do that freeze frame on him looking at the camera with the mm -hmm. crazy mouth in that scene there, I think in the background, there's an audio cue of like an engine whine, mm. like a very ominous sort of engine whine. It starts out below the audio threshold and then it gets 
just very slightly louder, mm -hmm. but still quiet enough that you can't be entirely certain it, it's there mm. in a very creepy kind of way. Char's purpose in this episode seems to be just to be ominous, to make us <laughs> fear for the white base. I, I think that Char's purpose in this episode is to be popular. Ah, I see. I think, <laughs> I think Char is here in this episode to say, look, guys, Char is coming back. Char is <laughs> going to be back in the next, you know, half of the show. You love Char, don't you? Please come back. Well, they have uh, played rather fast and loose with most of Amuro's rivals, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Baral got the longest lifespan. <laughs> yeah. After Char, so... And it's not as if we haven't gotten some interesting Xeon characters, but you can't compare McVeigh or the Black Tri-Stars to Ashar. Well, uh, the rival as a role is such an essential part of so many shonen mm -hmm. anime. Just say anime for young men. <laughs> right. And Ramba sort of played that role for a little while, but he was also a mentor. He was also, I mean, we have talked about how we think there's some like, sexual tension between Amuro and Ramba. Right. He was too much older to truly be a rival. Yeah. This episode has another one of those hooks that's like, come on, uh, give us some more time. We promise <laughs> it's going to be the show you want it to be in that scene with General Revel and all of the different Xeon mobile suits mm. and the discussion of how Xeon is developing all of these different individual prototypes. Which that, is... felt, <laughs> that felt aimed at me because, what, an episode or two ago, I was complaining about when are we going to get to see some new mobile suits? <laughs> and then the Dom showed up and you were totally disappointed by it. It's true. Yeah. I do. I like the Gog, though. I think the Gog is awesome. Oh, nice. Uh, I do not, but I'm, <laughs> I'm glad you do. Something about the claws. Mm -hmm. uh, also, the fact that as it emerges from the sea, it looks like something out of a kaiju movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it even destroys a lighthouse when it, with its first claw on land. And then it pulls its head up and you just see its head coming up over the berm and then the, the eye. Very uh, kaiju movie. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who may not know, a kaiju movie is a giant monster movie. Uh, so like a Godzilla or a King Kong. Yeah. Godzilla being the prototypical one that we get the name kaiju from, I believe. But there were tons of these movies made. Um, I want to say the first one was made in the 50s. They were actually fairly established <laughs> by the time we get to the late 70s. Yeah. So if you've seen Pacific Rim, but you'd never heard of kaiju before that, it's a whole genre uh, that Pacific Rim was really riffing on. And even the, the Gundam, when it emerges from the sea at the end of the episode and just his head is poking out in the water, <laughs> dripping down yeah, yeah. the head of the Gundam, that also is very reminiscent of these giant monster movies. I think that that scene with Revel and the discussion of all the upcoming Xeon mobile suits is really there to tell us, okay, we're going to do the monster of the week thing. <laughs> we promise. We're going to have a new mobile suit every week. <laughs> just keep watching the show. We know this is what you animals want. <laughs> Also, the spot makes the sponsor happy. Exactly. But we noticed this episode contains not only a transformation sequence in the beginning, where they do the classic gun parry, dropping the pieces and Amuro and the core fighter putting them together again, with the added wrinkle this time that they're going for like a speed record. <laughs> and Amuro can't quite beat 17 seconds yet. But then throughout the episode, they keep doing transformation sequences. So it's many. It's like they're trying to stick as many transformation sequences as they can. And as many different variations on the G-whatever, right? We have the G-bull, <laughs> then it combines to be the G-armor. Yeah, we have the G-bull, mm -hmm. then it combines to be the G-armor, then it splits up in the same shot to be the G-fighter and the Gundam separated again. 
Yeah, that scene particularly confused me because Bright has just told Sayla, oh, in the G-Fighter, she needs to be covering the Gundam while it's fighting mm-hmm. in the water. But she's not in the G-Fighter yet. She right. and Amuro are both in the G-Bowl. Which is weird because in a scene before that, somebody told Sayla, oh, don't go out in the G-Bowl, stay here with the G-Fighter. But then we get all these scenes of her in the cockpit of the G-Bowl reacting when things happen to it. It's whatever. Yeah, anyway. But we get our, <laughs> we get our <laughs> most confusing transformation sequence to date uh, because the G-Armor, which has the Gundam A parts, so the top of the Gundam, uh, is flying around. And then the second half of it with the Gundam B parts flies up. The whole thing links up. Then it disconnects so that the Gundam like falls out of the middle of it. <laughs> and then the two ends reconnect again to make the G-Fighter. You forgot, <laughs> you forgot that somehow, for some reason, one of the shields has to fall off before it can do this? Well, it, it, he doesn't need two shields. Is he going to use one for protection and one bash the Gog to death? Now I'm picturing him fighting with shields. It's actually really cool. <laughs> but both the G-Bull and the G-Armor have the two shields, one on each side. And yet when it goes from G-Bull to G-Armor, it has to drop one of the shields off. I'm not saying it makes sense, man. <laughs> I demand that it makes sense. I'm supposed to be <laughs> the one <laughs> demanding things that are impossible and not part of the Gundamverse. <laughs> In addition to feeling like a giant monster in a film, something about the Gog felt very familiar in its design aesthetic to me. Mm -hmm. And we'll want to do a little research and see. Uh, But I'm wondering if that design, something about the the shape or, I don't know, uh, was influenced by previous science fiction. Um, I don't know why it popped into my head of all things, but I'm thinking like Flash Gordon or (laughs) like really old sci-fi where men in suits would have been your robots. I will say, I think what makes it feel like an old monster movie robot or old sci-fi movie robot for you is probably those articulated arms. The arms look more like like a goosenecked lamp. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a bunch of sort of ring segments held together. Right. And for a lot of those guy in a suit robot movies, they'd use like ducts. (laughs) Tubing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And for for the various limbs. And so it would have that same look to it. So I think that's where you're getting that. The other thing that is clearly startling, both for me and for Amuro in this episode, is when they're showing all these different Xeon designs on the television screen or computer screen behind General Rebel. And it's they flash something like eight or ten different designs. Mm-hmm. So somehow we still have only one Gundam, <laughs> but we have almost a dozen different Xeon mobile suits. Well, as various Xeon characters have told us over the last few episodes, Xeon does have more experience designing mobile suits and you know more mobile suit factories or whatever. And we're starting to see the Gundam become outdated already. When it faced, I think this happened for the first time when he faced the Doms, but Amro's Vulcan cannons in the Gundam's head, which he's used on many occasions to great effect so far, are no longer effective. They aren't capable of doing any damage to a modern Xeon mobile suit. The, the Gog just shrugs them off and the, and the Dom did too. And then in this episode, the G-Hammer, which 
When it first appeared back in episode five, well, the only time it previously appeared back in episode five, a single hit from this thing was more than adequate to destroy Azaku. And now the Gog just, you know, shrugs it off. And later the Gog actually catches it. And this is even after it has been upgraded with rocket thrusters. Yeah, it feels like there are two things going on here. The first being that across the board, everybody's got better armor. Yeah. All the Xeon mobile suits, but also the newer Federation stuff. Sayla comments on the strength of the armor of the G-Bull, that they take a direct laser hit of some kind and shrug it off. Mm -hmm. So armor development across the board, vastly improved. Yep. Secondly, it seems like there's a, a significant power output difference. You know, the GOG pilot makes a comment about horsepower. <laughs> well, early on, we saw how much more powerful the Gundam was compared to Izaku, that it could, with its bare metal Gundam hands, tear the Zaku apart. And now we're seeing at least that playing field is even. The GOG is at least as strong as the Gundam, maybe more strong. I would guess more mm -hmm. strong based on the way the GOG can sort of ragdoll the Gundam, especially once they're in the water. I, I also speculated that just because the GOG is made to be amphibious, mm -hmm. it's going to operate faster, maneuver better once they're underwater. That's why he lures the Gundam. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the Gundam is slowed down by the water and the GOG is sped up by it. I don't know how um, official this is, but in the sort of technical specifications for the GOG, they talk about how... Basically, it was built with totally inadequate cooling systems mm. for its level of power, which enables it to be more efficient and more powerful at the cost of not being able to operate very long, except when it's in the water where that cooling system is optimized. Well, the heat can just dissipate into the ocean. <laughs> exactly. And because it doesn't rely on ballistics... And it doesn't rely very much on beam weapons. It mostly relies on its strength and those claws. It's not affected by the water in the same way that the Gundam is. I do want to make a quick podcast callback to episode five when we had our physicist friend Iraj on for the very first time. And we talked about the Gundam hammer and he pointed out that it would be a lot more effective if it had rocket jets on it. And now it does. <laughs> Though apparently only effective if he can surprise the enemy. Yep. Yeah, that underwater combat shows us a little bit of development on Amaro's side because really the only way he survives it, the only way Amaro gets through this combat is by fighting smart because he cannot outfight the Gog underwater. He just can't. The Gog is zipping past him so quickly that there's just no way <laughs> he would manage. Even once it gets in grappling range, it's dragging him so fast and has him gripped so well that he can barely move. But it occurs to him that if he can take out the Gog's camera, then a lot of its movement advantage goes away because it can't see where it's going. And he does exactly that very skillfully. But yeah, we're seeing a shift away from a, a more panicky Amuro. We're seeing a shift away from a more battle-crazed, <laughs> uh, imprecise Amuro to one who has time in the moment to think, ah, this is what I should do. This is the optimal course of action. Although... For what it's worth, I think jumping into the water after the Gog was very reckless. It was. He should have let the Gog escape. I, I agree with you, but that's Amaro all over. I'm saying he made slight improvements. <laughs> He's not completely reformed. <laughs> well, then after that battle, we see something that we don't usually see, which is everybody's really worried about Amaro. I wondered about that because the particularly, 
I saw this most not even in the tension when they're waiting to find out what's happened, because then they're sort of still in battle mode. Uh, it might be the enemy who made it and they need to be ready. But in the show of emotion and the sense of relief when they see that Amaro is alive. Yeah. So it made it made total sense for me that Frabo would react that way. Mm-hmm. She's new to this. She hasn't really been on the bridge much during Amaro's combats. Her experience of the battles so far has mostly been Amaro goes out, Amaro comes back. Mm-hmm. So for her to be there directly in communication with him, losing communication with him, he's somewhere underwater, who knows what's happened. That's new for her. And she's so attached to Amaro. And Fra is more emotional than Sela anyway. So it's not a surprise that at Sela's station, Fraba would be a little panicky. The fact that everybody else on the bridge also does that, and though. And bright, especially. Bright, I think there's, I mean, there's a cheer when Amaro comes back up from everybody, including the operators. And so that's a bit of a surprise. So in terms of thinking about reasons that this might be the case, one, they've experienced a lot of loss recently. And so while Amaro may not be their favorite person <laughs> in the crew, <laughs> the the thought that they might be about to lose one more crew member after everything that's happened and someone so frankly essential mm-hmm. to their own defense, I can see how that would be devastating. Yeah. Uh, Amaro has also been behaving himself more, right? Mm-hmm. Amaro has really allowed himself to become enmeshed in the group in a way that he hadn't previously. Mm-hmm. We do get a sense that all is forgiven. Yeah. Now that he's playing his part, now that he's fulfilling his role. Well, let's talk about Amaro in this episode. Because we get, I would say, outside of the combat, which is Amaro going into his like fugue state. We'll ignore <laughs> that. But... There's a couple of interesting notes for Amaro in this episode. The first is at the very beginning with Kai, when Amaro is like needling Kai about the fact that once they get to the Federation base, they're probably going to be enrolled into the army properly. And Amaro, he's like fiddling with his collar. He looks pleased with himself. He does. Maybe because he's needling Kai, like maybe Amaro takes a little bit of, <laughs> of, of joy in giving Kai some of his own. I'm sure he does. But that... That gesture, that fiddling with the the collar, the collar, which is his like Federation ranking collar, right? Mm-hmm. That's, I think, extremely significant. And it suggests a kind of like pride in being a soldier now, which is a little weird because then later in the episode, he's when he's in the scene with General Revel and General Revel says, anybody who doesn't join up now goes to jail. Amaro is like, what? You, you can't, can't. <laughs> do that. But it's, it doesn't seem like he's saying that for himself. Mm-hmm. Amaro is happy to join the army. Well, maybe not happy, but Amaro is proud to join the army. He's just concerned about Frabo, I think, and the orphans. Although Frabo, in their conversation a scene later, it doesn't sound like Frabo doesn't want to join the army. She's just worried about other people who might <laughs> not want to join the army. Maybe Amaro. Well, I think in a in a funny way, Amaro is very concerned about individual freedoms, <laughs> which is part of why he chafed at his role to begin with. You mean like the individual freedom to pilot the Gundam? And to not feel pressured by other people and, you know. Right. To not go out when he doesn't want to go out. And so the idea that people who don't want to be there will be forced to be there bothers him. It bothered him when it was him, even though he has come to accept it. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing a... A ripple of that. Mm -hmm. But he also does it in a way that is acceptable, right? He expresses shock (laughs) and disagreement, but then he leaves it alone. Mm -hmm. Everyone is startled when he does it, but 
you know, the revel keeps us, <laughs> the revel, <laughs> the general keeps us cool and we move on. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I do wonder if there are stories of civilians who are essentially conscripted because of accidental exposure to top secret information. Hmm. It's a really common story, right? right? It's a common trope, but did it ever actually happen? Right. <laughs> I feel like there were spies who were like, especially during World War II, there were spies who were caught as criminals and then forced to become spies. Or I think there were a bunch of like French resistance fighters who were caught by the Nazis and forced to become spies. Mm. And there were a bunch of German agents in England who were captured by (laughs) MI5 and turned and used to feed false intelligence back to the Germans. That's how they concealed the actual landing point for D-Day. And you mentioned Fra, and why would she ask in the first place? She seems deeply conflicted. On the one hand, obviously to everyone, it's a little careless <laughs> to take a bunch of small children into battle. It's it's not a reasonable course of action. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the white base is their home, and the crew is their family, mm-hmm. and it seems cruel to split them up. And if they leave the children behind, who will look after them? Yeah. <laughs> This part made me think of the war classic Grave of the Fireflies, which is desperately sad, but is about two war orphans in Japan and the, frankly, horrible suffering they endure because there is no one to look after them. They have no one. Yeah. And on balance, Frabo decides better to keep the kids with their family than to leave them behind, that the dangers of war are worth risking. Mm-hmm. If the kids can stay in the company of like a loving, caring family. Well, and immediately, immediately we get that shot of Kai yelling at the orphans. Hey, stay off the docks. It's not safe for you here. Mm -hmm. Right. The crew of the white base takes care of them. Yep. And the kids have a sense of purpose. They're Mm -hmm. like, oh, we have important stuff to do. We have to go clean all the bathrooms and change all the sheets. (laughs) Yeah. Meaner. Oh, God, that scene when they first do that to Revel. Oh, yeah. I was really uncomfortable because Katz is doing the Nazi salute. Yes, he is. And then they pull into like mock Federation salutes, sloppy ones, and do the like eye pull, tongue sticking out thing that's the classic in anime. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Nina's doing it right now. It's apparently very funny. Uh The thing that got hinted at at the end of the previous episode, Odessa Day, comes to pass. They are part of the Federation Army now. They are receiving Federation orders. And we'll see what comes of it. For the most part, everybody seems to be falling into line. Although I loved Kai uh, during the battle when Kai runs into spy number 107 again Mm -hmm. uh, in the streets. And she refers to him as a soldier. Mm -hmm. And Kai, who is (laughs) like driving a missile battery, is like, we're not soldiers. Now let's get back to the battle. Yeah. I think it's reflexive for him at this point. He's not even (laughs) thinking about it. The final bit that really struck me in this episode is we have Revel at his command post with some monitoring and radio equipment and his men. And he's watching the battle out the window because it's right at the edges of town and in the town proper. Mm -hmm. And at one point, he expresses frustration, like, why can't we guard, you know, that position? What What's happening? Well, this is right after he's had to dodge some shrapnel. Yes. Uh, and when they contact whoever is in charge of that defensive line, they're like, oh, we've just requested help from the gun tank. 
And Revel sort of muses to himself, like, wow, we really can't do anything without mobile suits anymore, can we? Which immediately brought me to the fact that I can't help but feel that this must have been a very common experience for senior officers in World War II, uh, as many of them would have fought in World War I. <laughs> and the, the technological changes between the two wars, the difference in the way war is fought and the tactics necessary is so vast. <laughs> And so difficult to wrap your mind around when all of your training, everything that you learned, all of your experience has been in a fundamentally different kind of warfare. Mm -hmm. There's a quote from Marshal Foch, who was the French field marshal who, this is a bit reductive, but we can say won World War One. And in the intervening years, uh, he said... The military mind always imagines that the next war will be on the same lines as the last. That has never been the case and never will be. One other quote uh, that I found while I was looking for that Foch one, which is from Winston Churchill, and I'm going to alter it slightly. I'm going to change one word. Let me know if you can guess which one I changed. For good or for ill, mobile suit mastery is today the supreme expression of military power, and fleets and armies, however vital and important, must accept a subordinate rank. I assume it's air. Air yes. mastery. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly right. The one thing I want to talk about that we haven't covered yet is Little Miss Spy 107. So she is interesting for two reasons. One, this is the first time since the first episode when the show has taken place in an inhabited area. That's true. Yeah. Though Dublin is uh, not in the best condition. They're Belfast, not Dublin. You're right. <laughs> anyway, I they're in Ireland. Ireland, <laughs> Ireland has clearly suffered from the war. Um, but we do see some we do see some civilian areas and we do see this Xeon spy who at this point we don't really know what her deal is. She m seems to be making a living selling various sundry goods near the military base. Though perhaps not a good living. She is very persistent. Right. And and somewhat flirtatious, which clearly makes Amaro uncomfortable. <laughs> Kai seems to enjoy it. They have a nice little like pulling faces at each other competition. We see from a photo in her home, she's got two kids, no sign of a husband or any other family. Mm -hmm. And she's doing some intelligence work for Xeon. The minute I saw that balloon, I was like, oh my gosh, the, <laughs> the attack balloons. <laughs> some of you may know this already. It's definitely something I want to research more. But Japan released a great number of balloons loaded with explosives uh, that were meant to hit the west coast of the United States. Uh, and there was a plan to use not just explosives, but biological weapons as well, to basically attach vials of super plague to balloons and then send them drifting towards the US. So that's something we'll talk about some more later, <laughs> later this episode. I wonder if we'll ever see her again. Probably not. She doesn't seem important. <laughs> As I mentioned in the talkback, the moment we saw the local woman send her spy balloon off to the sea, Tom and I thought of the balloons Japan used against the West Coast during World War II. But it turns out that the history of using balloons for warfare, for observation, aerial bombardment, and espionage, is long, diverse, and occasionally quite strange. <laughs> 
Arguably the very first military balloons were the Kongmin lanterns, used by the Han Dynasty for military signaling. Uh, these were used in the late Han Dynasty, so somewhere around 100 or 200 CE. European-style balloons were first used at the Battle of Fleurus in 1794, where the French aerostatic corps of the First French Republic used the balloons to observe enemy troop movements. My first draft said in Europe, but that wasn't actually true because the Mongol army used paper signal lanterns in the Battle of Legnica in what is now Poland, mm -hmm. and that was in 1241. Earliest records of attack balloons are from 1849, when Austria was besieging Venice and attempted to float over 200 paper hot air balloons loaded with bombs over the city. The bombs these balloons carried were on time fuses, and at least one actually fell on the city, but the wind shifted after they were released such that most of them missed. <laughs> balloons saw more widespread use in the American Civil War on the Union side. They were mostly used to map terrain and surveil troop movements and position. Because they couldn't really steer, these were usually tethered ascents. The problem being then that the Southern Army knew exactly where your command post was. <laughs> and since most balloonists were not military trained, their observations were imprecise. On the plus side, with a spotter up in a balloon communicating via flag signals, gunners on the ground could fire accurately at targets they couldn't actually see, which was an entirely new ability at the time. The Civil War also gives us possibly the first aircraft carrier. <laughs> what? The USS George Washington Park Custis, a coal barge, which carried several balloons down the Potomac to make observations of the battlefront as it approached Richmond. Wow. Uh, balloons were also used in the Paraguayan War of 1867 and the Second Boer War in 1899. World War I was peak use of observation balloons. Peak balloon. <laughs> mostly as artillery spotters positioned well behind the front lines. A new kite type of balloon was flyable and more resilient in difficult weather. And the balloons were now defended by anti-aircraft guns, machine guns, and fighter planes. Fighter pilots who were particularly skilled at taking out balloons were called balloon busters. <laughs> so there are famous balloon busters in history, <laughs> if that's a thing you want to learn more about. Balloonists were also the first ones to use parachutes. I guess that makes sense. I mean, a parachute is just a just a mobile balloon. It was also probably much safer to parachute out of a stationary balloon than out of a moving plane. Yeah. Well, and no <laughs> propellers to get caught in. Yeah. You weren't at the same high altitude. Like, it's a good test case. <laughs> <laughs> this was also when the barrage balloon was invented. These were large kite balloons which would be strung underneath with huge nets of cable, the point of which was to protect an area from approach by fighter planes and bombers. So imagine for a moment you're a plane and you're approaching a city, and suddenly you can kind of tell there are a bunch of cables, but you can't really see them, you don't know the distance between them, it is absolutely not safe to get anywhere near them. Suddenly you have to go completely around an area. Um, there were kilometers and kilometers of this cabling <laughs> around London towards the end of World War I. <laughs> yeah. Before we get to Japan-specific examples, there are many other notable uses of balloons in World War II. The British launched almost 100,000 balloons at Germany and occupied Europe, carrying incendiary devices or trailing wires which were meant to damage power lines. Yeah. And I can see how, from the British perspective, at that point, basically all of continental Europe was either Nazi-occupied or staying out of the fight. Mm -hmm. So 
It doesn't really matter where the balloons go. Yeah. They're not going to hurt your friends. Uh, the United States used balloons for submarine spotting. Barrage balloons, the ones with the trailing nets, were also still in use. Uh, in a bunch of these cases, the benefit of using balloons over, say, a plane is fuel use. A balloon can stay up in the air for much longer than a plane can at much less cost. And while the balloon can't move around as much, sometimes that's an advantage. The balloon can just stay there in a particular vicinity. Japan's fire balloons, called fugal, were something different. They took advantage of a newly discovered high-altitude jet stream to move balloons from the home islands to the American Pacific coast in just three days. That feels like a lot until I think about balloons doing it. Right. They were inexpensive and intended to cause more fear and terror than physical damage. They were also the first weapons with an intercontinental range. Intercontinental ballistic balloons. It's true, man. <laughs> uh, in all, the Japanese army launched over 9,000 balloons, with approximately 300 making it across the Pacific. Although this is the reported number, more may have fallen, but on unpopulated areas. I don't think it's overstating it to say that the U.S. government freaked out. <laughs> they couldn't see how the balloons could possibly have come from Japan and thought they were being launched locally. The initial concern was not over explosives or fire damage, but that the balloons might be carrying biological weapons, something which had been proposed but was never put into action. Japan had a rather infamous biological weapons development facility in occupied China at the time. Uh, and they were working on anthrax, they were working on cowpox, they were working on bubonic plague, weaponizing all of these things. The U.S. government called for a press blackout to avoid a panic, but lifted the blackout after the first and only lethal bomb attack so that people would know what to look for and what to be careful of. The one lethal bomb attack involved an explosive that did not detonate when it hit the ground and then was found uh, by a Sunday school picnic. And the woman leading the picnic and the children, six people in total, died in the explosion. Which, had they known that they might happen upon a bomb in the middle of nowhere, they might have been more careful. As recently as October of 2014, someone discovered an unexploded incendiary from one of the Fugal. It was too dangerous to move and had to be detonated in place. Where was it? In Oregon. Balloons continue to be used in warfare to this day. <laughs> they were used for some surveillance purposes during the Cold War. Some of what they were used for like, as informational relays became obsolete when satellites became more common. But they're still used for guerrilla warfare. They're still used for observation. One final, only somewhat related thing. <laughs> I had a moment watching this scene where I wondered how she sent that image to the Mad Angler. You can imagine my embarrassment when a quick search reminded me that sending an image through radio waves is how television used to work. <laughs> <laughs> the hard part for our spy would be converting a photo into the data necessary to transmit an image. Uh, basically, every pixel on an image is assigned an X and Y value, and then assigned either a brightness for a black and white image, or a color for cyan, magenta, yellow for a color image, and you could transmit an image that way. I don't know how one person sitting down without taking hours to do so would convert it, but the show could easily explain that part in a hand wave of future technology. Uh, she does have those very high-tech binoculars, and then her camera is clearly more high-tech than Kai's Polaroid from a few episodes back. So it seems like she's got that secret spy gear. 
She does, however, type with only two fingers. <laughs> uh, that was that was advanced typing for the nineteen seventies. <laughs> Remember last episode when I mentioned that I thought there was an historical parallel for the treachery of the Turncoat Federation General Elrin? We didn't have time to talk about him last episode, but I did promise we would come back to it if we had time this episode, and hey, what do you know? Spies and treachery are still relevant. So let's talk about Elrin's predecessors in betrayal. Remember, before we start, what the Elrin-McVeigh plan was. McVeigh's agents suborned a high-ranking Federation officer, presumably with promises of rewards after Xeon won the war. In exchange, Elrin gave McVeigh intelligence about Federation troop movements, but more crucially, he was going to hold back during Odessa, allowing McVeigh to concentrate all of his forces against General Revel's section during the battle and negating the Federation's numerical advantage. The Odessa operation concentrated almost all of the Federation's terrestrial forces into one place. So defeat there might have meant the end of the Federation and the beginning of complete Zionic hegemony under the military dictatorship of the Zabi clan. Hmm. A general secretly agreeing to hold his troops back from a decisive battle, allowing another clan to establish a military dictatorship. That sounds so familiar. (laughs) Like I've heard something about it before. Keicho era, year 5, 15th day of the ninth month, October 21, 1600, by Western accounting. Lord Hideyoshi of the Toyotomi clan, the foot soldier turned master of all Japan, is dead, and after two failed invasions of the Korean peninsula, the prestige, wealth, and military might of his clan have all been exhausted. His heir, Hideyori, is only five years old, and the council of elders established to oversee the realm until the boy comes of age has fractured following the death of its most senior member, the stabilizing force Maeda Toshiie. Diplomatic maneuvers and provocations have spilled over into open warfare, and the two factions have raised their armies. Now they meet in a mountain valley near Lake Biwa called Sekigahara. The 120,000 strong Western Army, commanded by the bureaucrat and soldier Ishida Mitsunari, took up a strong defensive position, badly outnumbering the Eastern Army with its 75,000 soldiers. But those Eastern soldiers were commanded personally by the war master Tokugawa Ieyasu. He is 57 at this point, and has already outlasted all of the great and famous commanders of his generation. And he did not survive that long through innocence. Ishida's large Western Army occupied the slopes, forming a rough crescent around Tokugawa and the Eastern Army in the lowlands. The battle began on the flanks, where the Tokugawa forces took the initiative. Ishida tried to dispatch part of his reserves to flank the attacking Easterners, but his army was an alliance of shared interests, and many of his commanders did not respect him enough to follow his orders. Even so, he still had the numbers advantage, and on both flanks, Ishida's Westerners held their own. In the south, the Ishida right flank faded back, but as the Tokugawa vanguard pressed their advantage, they were flanked and set upon by 600 men, commanded by the nearly blind, bedridden leper lord Otani, and behind them, nearly 16,000 men serving the Kobayakawa clan, the second largest single force in the Western Army. It would now be a simple matter for Kobayakawa to roll down the mountainside, join Otani, crush the Tokugawa flank, and then sweep into the unprotected center of the Eastern Army, solidifying Ishida's control of the country, and ushering in what would, for various complicated political reasons, have been called the Mori Taiko, or Regency. 
except Kobayakawa delayed, and delayed, and delayed, and then at last he charged into Otani's rear. Kobayakawa had agreed long before the battle to join the Tokugawa side. For years, he had secretly hated Ishida, and now, with Tokugawa's promise of land and position to sweeten the deal, he turned his coat at a crucial moment. The Kobayakawa defection forced the hands of the other generals Tokugawa had been courting. Four more generals, placed at vital positions in the western line, declared for Tokugawa. But Ishida was not yet beaten. He fell back to Mount Nangu, where he still had some 25,000 soldiers from the Chosokabe and Mori clans. But of those 25,000, the vanguard, 3,000 men, was commanded by Kikawa Hiroye, and he had spent the whole battle making excuses for why he could not engage, holding up the 15,000 more Mori and nearly 7,000 Chosokabe soldiers deployed behind him. And if there was any doubt about his loyalties, he made them clear now, intercepting Ishida and preventing him from reaching the loyal troops waiting further up the mountain. Kikawa, you see, was a retainer of the Mori clan, but although Mori sided with Ishida, Kikawa had long ago concluded that Tokugawa would win this confrontation. Seeking to safeguard his clan's domains, he made a secret pact with Tokugawa to ensure Mori neutrality during the battle in exchange for clemency in the aftermath. Neither Kobayakawa nor Kikawa got much joy out of their defections, even if they were instrumental in the Tokugawa victory and the subsequent unification of Japan under the shogunate. Kobayakawa was awarded two new domains for his troubles, but two years later, at a mere 25 years old, he supposedly went utterly mad and then died. His clan disbanded, and his domains were absorbed by the neighboring Ikeda clan. Kikawa lived long enough to see other members of the Mori clan throw away the favor his deception had bought. Their territory was reduced to a quarter of its pre-Sekigahara size, and somehow Kikawa got blamed for it all. Now, both of them do get to appear in various video games, novels, and movies set during the Warring States, but the depictions are not flattering. So getting found out when he did might have been the best thing that ever happened for General Elrond's legacy. At least now he just gets executed and forgotten. As opposed to remembered forever for his treachery. <laughs> He's just going to be a footnote on Space Wikipedia. That moment when General Revel tells Frabo that anyone who doesn't join the army will have to be imprisoned for a period of time because they know too much <laughs> made me wonder if that's ever happened to anyone. Because obviously they weren't intentionally seeking out this information. They didn't have clearance or whatever and then give classified information to someone else. So I did some digging. The long and short of it is no, I couldn't find any stories <laughs> of a civilian accidentally exposed to secret information and then jailed to prevent them giving that information to someone else. That's not to say it's never happened, but I couldn't find anything about it. In the United States, at least, there are several levels of restricted material. Uh, restricted is the actually the lowest level, <laughs> then confidential, then secret, then top secret. But one thing that came up as I was searching is that people with access to some level of confidential information almost always accidentally give pieces of it away. <laughs> um, either because there's so much of it they know and it's just natural to forget which bits of government information are secret and which aren't. Uh, also because in a verbal briefing, it's not always clear which parts of what you're being told are secret and which are not. <laughs> uh, 
It happens all the time, apparently. It's not unusual. Generally speaking, these accidental disclosures are not all that harshly punished unless they really need to make an example of someone or if it results in something really terrible happening, then. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But if there's no fallout from it, it's generally just let alone. One of the best things I found was actually a guide from the National Archives of the United States about what to do if you're handling somebody's records, which they've left to some museum or some archive, and you discover that those records contain secret information. So someone leaves your museum their private papers, and as you're mm-hmm. going through them, you're like, oh, no. <laughs> this this says how to build an H-bomb. This is very secret. Uh, it turns out you can send any secret information through the U.S. Postal Service as long as you <laughs> use the certified mail, except for the top secret stuff. That has to be specially couriered to the National Archives. Uh And again, there's no indication that you get in any trouble for having seen this stuff. They recommend a whole bunch of mitigation strategies that you should be looking for markings on the document that indicate what level of secrecy is around it, whether or not it was ever declassified. Once you establish that you have classified information, you're supposed to isolate it and have as few people handling it as possible. But the indication is not like, leave it where it is, lock the room, nobody's allowed in there until someone can look at it. It's like, no, you know, someone should carefully pack it up and put it in a safe or some other secure location before it can be sent to the relevant agency. I just love the idea of a librarian accidentally (laughs) happening (laughs) upon top secret information. One of the things they mention is that uh, some of these old documents even contain World War II era like code information, top secret codes. And they said that even though it's quite old, is still very fiercely protected information and under no circumstances should be released to anyone. Interesting. Hmm. This is from the frequently asked questions <laughs> on identifying and handling classified records and private papers from the National Archives. Uh, since World War II, when the British used the word ultra to designate intelligence obtained by cracking German Enigma encryptions, the most sensitive types of information of the U.S. government have been identified by special code words. These include intercepts of encoded enemy radio signals, information about satellite reconnaissance, and human intelligence programs. If you see words like umbra, talent keyhole, rough, or gamma on records also carrying a secret or top-secret classification marking, you should realize that you have in your collection something particularly damaging to national security if improperly released, regardless of the age of the records. That's so cool. But also terrifying, because it just reminds you that there are all these government officials with very dangerous information who just have, like, scribbled notes in their home office (laughs) about things that would be damaging to national security. (laughs) It's another point they make. Uh, Confidential information could be in like handwritten notes rather than in official type documents. And in handwritten notes, obviously, it's much less likely to be labeled top secret or secret or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. just scribbled there and you don't even know what you have. If your institution does not have federally approved secure storage, immediately remove the records from public review and restrict access to as few staff members as possible. Until they are ready for transmittal, the records should be locked in a safe filing cabinet or other secure area. (laughs) When mailing materials, please adhere to the following. Wrap the body of records in opaque paper. Heavy brown paper or brown mailing envelopes are best. 
Confidential and secret materials may be wrapped together. Seal all seams with filament tape. <laughs> Label the front and back of the package with the highest classification marking of the documents it contains. Wrap the entire package once more in opaque paper. <laughs> Again, address the package to the director of ISOO as indicated above and provide a return address. On the outer wrapper, do not write the classification level of the materials <laughs> contained within. Again, seal all seams with filament tape. Oh, this is amazing. Yeah, so good. I'm sure Manuel is highest ultra top secret. Gamma. <laughs> Black box. Lollipop. <laughs> Rough. I want to know who picked that code word. <laughs> code word rough. Not R-O-U-G-H. R-U-F-F. Oh, like a dog. Like or, like rough, a, rough. Or, or like a fancy collar on Elizabethan clothing. <laughs> there is a scene in this episode where the attacking gogs run into a Federation minefield triggering one of the mines and then releasing something that they call freeze gel, or in the Japanese, freezy yard, that forms a membrane around the gog, catching other mines and preventing them from detonating. Which is cool, but how would any of these things actually work? Well, one of the ways you can categorize naval mines is by their triggering mechanism. The Federation garrison was not aware of the gogs before they detonated that first mine, so we can rule remote control right out. That leaves either contact-triggered mines, and those are exactly what they sound like, or influence-triggered mines. Influence mines are really interesting because they're capable of detecting nearby ships via various different data, and they're calibrated to detonate when one of the ships gets near enough, not when the ship actually touches the mine. So the ship is then damaged not so much by the explosion as by the pressure wave from the explosion, which can cause a lot of damage inside the ship without necessarily punching through the armored hull. So influence mines today use data from an array of different sensors, and they use onboard data processing in order to make sure that they're targeting exactly the sort of ship that they are meant to target. They can triangulate between sophisticated magnetic, acoustic, and pressure sensors in order to identify, say, an aircraft carrier and ignore a tanker. Thus, an influence mine can be set to ignore something like a minesweeper or a light escort craft and only detonate when a high-value target is in the area. Now, initially, when they were first introduced during World War II, what they did was basically monitor the magnetic field and large ferrous objects, like, say, giant steel warships, affect the magnetic field enough that the magnetometers in the influence mines would detect the presence of the warship and then detonate. And these could be placed on the seafloor if the water was shallow enough, or they could be floating in the water. And some influence mines, called homing mines, will actually move toward the target once they detect it in order to do more damage. So I've watched this scene about a dozen times, and for the life of me, I can't actually decide whether these mines are homing mines moving toward the GOG, or if the GOG is just running into a densely mined region at full speed. But either way, we can tell from watching the scene that these must be contact mines, because the first mine detonates when it hits the GOG, and the subsequent mines that get trapped in the freeze gel don't explode at all, mm -hmm. despite being right next to the GOG. So there are a couple of different ways to trigger a contact mine. From around 1870 on, they've used what are called horn fuses. And when you see a naval mine and it's got all the spiky protrusions, those are the horn fuses. The way those work is each one has a vial of acid inside. And if a ship crunches into the mine, it'll shatter that vial of acid. 
and the acid will then drain down into the mine. Older mines would just have uh, like a powder in there that would combust when it came in contact with the acid, and then that would trigger the uh, gunpowder in the mine. More modern mines use a lead acid battery with no acid. And so when the acid is introduced into the battery, it Starts. charges the battery, <laughs> and then that electricity charges the detonator. Clever. Yeah. So if that's the case, then the freezy gel must be sort of soft and squishy enough that it can capture the mines without crushing any of their trigger vials. And that's possible, but it seems kind of unlikely, especially given the speed at which the GOG is moving. So that makes me think that these mines are probably antenna mines. Antenna mines were developed during World War II specifically to target submarines. And the way they work is they have the conventional horn fuses, but they also have a copper antenna. And if the steel hull of a submarine comes into contact with the copper wire, the two different metals and the seawater around them form a battery, completing a circuit and triggering the mine's detonation. So in that case, all the freezy gel has to do is prevent the mine's antenna from making contact with the metal of the gawk, which seems much more likely. Speaking of the gawk, this episode we say hello to another new mobile suit. And it's a truly special purpose one that was built exclusively, or at least mainly, for aquatic combat. It can operate on land, but it's definitely better suited to fighting underwater, where it's both faster and better armed than the Gundam. And the GOG has a strikingly different aesthetic from the other Xeon mobile suits we've seen so far, with its potato-shaped body, waist-mounted beam cannons, wiggly-bendy segmented arms, slashing claws, thick legs, high-waisted briefs, upside-down T-shaped mono-eye, and unlike all the other Xeon mobile suits, no skirt. It's also tremendously strong, which we see when it is able to easily catch even the powered-up, rocket-assisted variation of the G-Hammer. It feels a little like an old-school movie monster of the guy-in-a-rubber-suit variety. The two gogs even emerge terrifyingly from the sea, the way Godzilla types always have. I did a little bit of research and could not find anything that looked exactly like what I was picturing in my head. So I don't know why the GOG looks familiar to me, although certain aspects of it actually, I realized, remind me of a diving suit. Hmm. If you think of the very old-fashioned pressurized diving suits, which would have had a sort of bell-shaped helmet, the same sort of articulation in the arms and legs, uh, they would not have had the cool claw grippers, but <laughs> you got to make some changes. Uh, I think that might actually be the closest visual reference to the GOG itself. All right. I have a different theory to propose. Oh. Yeah. So first, focus on the overall body shape of the GOG, the okay. coloration of its different pieces, mm -hmm. the sort of brief look of the groin section, mm -hmm. the separate gold and red band around the waist with its multiple beam cannons. Mr. Potato Head. Not quite. <laughs> I think it's based on the appearance of professional wrestlers from the early days of what in Japan is called pro resu. Oh, cool. So these were like, these were powerfully built, but definitely thick men most of the time, wearing these high-waisted wrestling briefs or wrestling singlets. And they would wear the wrestling mask, which don't think about the eyes and the mouth in the wrestling mask. Think about the fabric between the eyes and the mouth, mm -hmm. which forms a kind of inverted T a lot like the eye track that the Gog's mono-eye moves on. Also, the beam cannons around the waist. Look at those and tell me that that doesn't look like a wrestling championship belt. <laughs> it totally does, right? Yeah, I can see it. 
Oh, plus, I hadn't put this together at the time, but there is a moment where the Gog attacks the Gundam by crouching low and then diving headfirst, like basically rocketing itself headfirst at the Gundam. Mm -hmm. Which, didn't you find out that's a wrestling move? Yeah, that is a wrestling move called the spear. It also looks a lot like, if you've ever played Street Fighter, <laughs> the sumo wrestler E. Honda has a special move where he crouches down and then he jumps up. His body goes completely parallel to the ground and then he fires himself like a torpedo at his opponent head first, which is basically exactly what the GOG does here, except it instead of crouching and jumping, it uses one of its arms to like launch itself. Also, that is how most sumo matches start with one of the sumos throwing himself head first at his opponent with all of his weight. You can even find some photos where they go parallel to the ground like that. <laughs> when did Pro Resu start in Japan? It started, I believe, in the late 50s, early 60s is when it okay. really started taking off. So it would have been really taking off when a lot of the animators were young men or kids. And I actually think that the GOG or really the Gogs, because there are two of them, like a tag team match, <laughs> might be meant to be an homage to specific tag teams that were quite famous at that point. There's a couple of different possibilities for who that might be, but their stories are really interesting. So I'm going to go into that in more detail in our next episode. Awesome. I will, however, leave you by pointing out that if you look up old promo photos of wrestlers from that era, they're all doing this like claw hands position. Oh. It looks a lot like the gog <laughs> slashy slashy claw hands. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. For any of you who are wrestling fans, uh, pro wrestling is totally still a thing. It's still very popular in Japan. There are a lot of pro wrestlers. Uh, I don't know in what ways it's similar or different to American pro wrestling, but that is probably a subject for another time. <laughs> Next week, we'll return with episode 1.24, Making Amends, to talk about Grabby Bros. Kai has some experiences and gets scared. More New Zealand mobile suits. Another trio of orphans. Loose lips. Cosplay. Seriously, Hayato, get your eyes checked. Fraternizing with the enemy and unlikely heroes. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Sela should have been Sela Moon, on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. 
The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. This is Mobile Suit Muffin Down. This is the first time since... <laughs> since we went out to... <laughs> <laughs> Cut that. <laughs> Isn't everybody supposed to be holed up at home today? It's really cold outside. What are all you people doing? I'm like a kaiju. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>